Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Behrens, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder-Longmont area of northern Colorado. Our website is crimsonthread.com. This study was recorded during our normal Tuesday evening Bible study. Enjoy the study. So we are in the book of Hebrews. Last time we finished chapters 1 and 2, and the theme there was the Messiah and the fact that he was better than angels, but that he came here to be humbled so that he would be able to help those who are tempted. And that's where we left off. So now we're in chapter 3. So therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Yeshua the apostle and priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. A couple of things. Why are we bringing Moses up? If you remember back earlier, it was talking about the Torah having been delivered by angels. Elsewhere, it describes Moses as being that angel because angel just being in the sense of messenger. So we have already established in chapters 1 and 2 that the Torah that Moses brought is reliable. And then how much more then is the teaching of the Messiah himself? So now here we're talking about Yeshua, who's an apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. So what he's saying is he's compared the teaching that Moses brought to the teaching Yeshua brought, and now he's comparing the faithfulness of Yeshua to the faithfulness of Moses. And what he'll do is he will then elevate Yeshua above Moses, which is, of course, appropriate. The apostle and high priest of our confession. What's that? So what's the difference between an apostle and a high priest? An apostle is one who's sent on a mission. Paul, for example, who's an apostle, is sent out to the Gentiles. That's what the word means, one who's sent. Sent by someone in authority. In other words, he's not going on his own. He is going, having been sent, in this case, by God. In that sense, the apostle is sent out, and he is to deliver the message of the one who sent him to the people he is sent to. So Paul, being the apostle of the Gentiles, for example, received a message from Yeshua, the gospel, was sent by Yeshua to the Gentiles, and his job there was to deliver the message that he was sent with. So what then is the difference between the apostle and the high priest? An apostle is one who is sent to somebody specific, from somebody specific, to deliver a message. A priest is someone who is an intermediary between people and God. Paul is an apostle. He was given a message by Yeshua. He was sent to the Gentiles, told to deliver that message, and he was faithful in doing that. Moses was the same way. Moses was not a priest. The priest is the guy that forms an intermediary as opposed to being a mailman. You know, I got this message I need to deliver. I'm the mailman. That's the apostle. The priest is an intermediary between God and the people. He makes sacrifices and all that kind of stuff, but he also gives things to the people from God. We're comparing Yeshua and Moses because we started that off earlier on with the content of the message 
that they both delivered as apostles. So in his role as apostle, Yeshua delivered a message. In his role as an apostle, Moses delivered a message. Moses' message was reliable. Yeshua's message is even more reliable because he, in fact, represents the center. Priest of our confession. What's a confession? It, it's a statement of belief. It has come to mean, as you started to say, that it's an admission of wrongdoing, but it's simply a statement of what you believe. Verse 3. We're all the way down to verse 3. For Yeshua has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Again, we're touching on the idea that Yeshua is one with the Father. Moses, in this analogy, is in the place of the house, whereas Yeshua then is in the place of the builder, and the builder has more honor than the thing he builds. Verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Messiah was faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So again, what he's saying is Moses was a servant, which Moses would certainly acknowledge whereas Yeshua is the son, and hence is in a higher position than Moses would be. And then he is saying we, the people to whom the letter is addressed, are his house, Yeshua's house or God's house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. And the hope, of course, we have is the hope of the inheritance, which is in the world to come and so forth. The phrase, boasting in our hope, sounds very Pauline. And we talked earlier that it's very probable that Paul wrote it, and it's very probable that he didn't sign his name because the people to whom it was addressed later on kicked him out and forbid people to read anything by Paul. So it, the fact that it wasn't signed is not an indicator that it's not by Paul. Phrases like this, boasting in our hope and so forth, sound very much like him. Verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my work for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the kickoff of a rift that he's going to do. The reading here is from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. And he's going to unpack this over the next several verses. And he's going to use rest in several contexts. So he's going to use rest to refer to the land. Because the generation that died in the wilderness didn't go into the land. In a general sense, you can say that entering the rest is going into the land. Popping that up a level, you can say entering his rest is making it into the millennial kingdom. Then at yet another level, you can say entering his rest is Shabbat. And he's going to touch on all those. Entering his rest would also include the feast, because there are Sabbaths that are the feasts that are different from the regular weekly Sabbath. Verse 12, take care, brothers, 
lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Messiah, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As long as it is called today, he's going to expand on that down below, but sort of put a tick, and we'll talk more about it when we get, get down farther below. So he's exhorting them to watch over their hearts so their hearts don't become evil and unbelieving. Because if their hearts do become evil and unbelieving, then they will lose their share in Messiah. What's that mean? Let's pop up a level first. Can you lose your salvation? I think you can. And the reason I do is because if you come into this of your own free will, you can leave of your own free will. Calvinists don't believe that. Calvinists believe that you don't have any choice about whether you come in. God makes you an offer you can't refuse. You come in, and then once you're in, he doesn't let you out. That's TULIP. TULIP is the acronym. T is total depravity. Unconditional grace is the U. L is limited atonement. In other words, God does not choose everybody. I is irresistible grace, which is God makes you an offer you can't refuse. And then P is perseverance of the saints, which means that once you're in, you can't get out. That's the five tenets of Calvinism. I will now slip into Johnnyology and tell you what I think, but what I think in a couple of bucks will get you a cup of coffee. I believe that God looks for you and he calls. You don't initiate the conversation, he does, by various means. You get to decide whether you accept or not. Once you accept, it is his policy to do everything possible to keep you as one of his own. He will contend for you, if you will. However, you can, of your own free will, finally decide, no, I don't want this, and leave. That's what I think. I think the scriptures back that up better than they do Calvinism. I am of the opinion that once you have made a decision for God, God will give you resources to help you stay firm in that conviction. It is not the case that God says, oh, glad you're here. See you in a millennium or so, and we'll find out what happens. No, he, he, he works with you, and he carries you along, and he does all sorts of things. He's actively involved in your walk. But again, that doesn't mean, at least as far as I can tell, that if you finally say, I've had this, I'm going to go start boosting 7-Elevens and dealing drugs and running prostitutes and all that kind of stuff, because that makes more sense. At that point, I think you will have walked away. I mean, if you're going to be a Calvinist, you, you can defend Calvinism from Scripture. I don't believe the defense is correct, but the people who do it are really good. And it's consistent. And so if that's what you want to be, by all means, you're, you know, you're all sitting here because I will suggest that you're all in the kingdom of God. And if you want to say you didn't have any choice getting here, and so I don't have any choice getting out, and that makes you feel good, fine. As I have said before, just because I don't agree with Calvinism doesn't mean that these people are foolish or stupid. They are not. 
They care about it. They have studied it. And they've come to that conclusion. I've come to a different conclusion. Your mileage may vary. For we have come to share in Messiah if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This whole riff started off by saying, if you don't hold your original confidence firm to the end, then you lose your share in Messiah, whatever that means. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Back to Psalm 95. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. You all know the story about the thing that caused them 40 years in the wilderness. Okay, when they sent the spies into the land, and the spies came back with a bad report, spread panic among the congregation so that the congregation refused to go up. It was at that point that God finally had had enough, and he says, you guys are not going to enter the land. And again, here we're using entering the land and entering rest as synonymous. Okay, it will be used other ways as we go along here. Chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Notice what he's saying here. This is really profound. He's saying that the people in the wilderness got the same message that you got. The gospel. So the question is, what is the gospel? I think the gospel is the Torah. That's the good news. In, in other words, the business with the spies giving up and not going into the land occurs after Sinai. They have got the Torah. The message that they had received is the Torah. And what Paul, or whoever wrote Hebrews here, is saying is they got the same message that you got. There is no difference in the message. As I am very fond of saying, everybody likes to call this the Brit Hadashah because it sounds all official in Hebrew. It is not the Brit Hadashah. It is not the New Covenant that we're reading here. It's the New Testament. And a testament is evidence. And so this is the evidence that Yeshua, the Messiah, is who he says he was, who came in accordance with the scriptures, who did the things that the scriptures said he was going to do, and this is the witness to those events. It is a testament. It is not a covenant. A covenant requires the shedding of blood. And one of the things that's in the New Testament is the evidence that Yeshua's blood seals the new covenant. I said that very carefully. Let me say it again. One of the things in the New Testament is that Yeshua's blood seals the new covenant. Just like, you know, when we read in Genesis 15, when smoking pot and the flaming torch go between the cut up pieces of animal, and that seals the covenant. 
This is the equivalent with Yeshua. It's the sealing of a covenant. But the, the new covenant is a thoroughly Old Testament Tanakh concept. It's given in Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. It's all over. That new covenant had not been ratified because there had been no shedding of blood. It was a future thing. When Messiah comes in the New Testament, the shedding of his blood is the blood that seals that new covenant. Uh, the key phrase in here is, they were not united by faith with those who listened. And what it's saying is, is they didn't have a relationship with God, even though they did have the Torah. And because they didn't have the faith, they didn't trust God. And when he told them to go up, they saw the giants. And giants got skin on them. God doesn't. So they freaked. And that's what caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Ready to move on here? I'm at verse 3. For we who have believed entered that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So now what rest is he talking about? I think that's probably the Sabbath. Because we're not talking to people who are in the millennial kingdom. It's very likely that these people are in the land, if they're Essenes and Ebionites. But the land at this point doesn't really belong to them. It's under Roman occupation. So I would suggest that the rest we're talking about here is Sabbath. Let's pick it up at three and take a run all the way to six. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, on this passage he says, they shall not enter my rest. So, as I said before, we're mixing two rests here. You're mixing the rest of the generation that fell in the wilderness who didn't get to go into the land, and for us today, the Sabbath. Verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. All right. So what he's saying there is David, who is some seven or 800 years after the generation that died in the wilderness, speaks still of entering the rest as today. Today being David's time. At David's time, the ability to enter that rest is still open. And what he's saying is, if it was still open for David, it has not been closed since. So as long as it is today, in other words, we are in our time stream and we are alive, the ability to enter that rest is still open. And it goes back to Genesis 1, or Genesis 1 and 2, where God on the seventh day entered the rest. As many people have said, and I agree, I don't think God entered his rest because he was tired. He entered his rest to show us that there is a rest to be entered in 
And because we are created in his image, we should also desire to enter into the same rest that he is in. Verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Which is what I just said. Verse 11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, and joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I'm going to have to start there next time, because there's too much there to unpack in five minutes. However, the thing I would leave you with is verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Notice it doesn't say strive in that rest. You've got to work to get in. Once you get in, you stop working. Because you're resting. As you are going through your life, working to get into Shabbat, there are lots of things that you have to do. He would be delighted if you kept his covenant. He would be delighted if you refrained from murdering the SOB that needs it. He would be delighted if you didn't boost a 7-Eleven store. And depending on what your temperament is, some of those things are harder to refrain from than others. I have no temptation whatsoever to go out and boost a 7-Eleven. I have on occasion, however, had murderous intent in my heart. I, I have. But the point is, all of us have got to work and struggle so that when we get to Sabbath, we can rest. Would somebody like closing prayer?